This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I often get asked, what's the most difficult thing about being on the radio from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. every morning? And most people assume that it's the hours. And look, the hours can be tough, but once you kind of get used to being nocturnal, there's something kind of charming about it, something kind of fun about it. But what I always tell people the most challenging aspect of this job is, it's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about. It's how do you fill four hours with creative creative, original, compelling content, not regurgitating the same things that you hear on every other radio station, 18 hours a day, but something different that's going to want to make people stay awake, turn up the volume and talk about what they heard the next day. And that's why I have become obsessed with the cause of creativity. How do you get inspired to do something different and to do something original? And I literally lie awake, not at night, but during the day, thinking about this stuff, wondering how can I come up with something that's different, that's new, so that, that's innovative? You know this if you listen to this show. Sometimes I'll, I'll outsource ideas to you guys, asking for different ideas about this or that or things that have never been done on the radio, and you've been a great resource. But I was really, really interested in the latest book by Matt Richtel. Now, I've been a fan of Matt Richtel ever since his uh, last book, An Elegant Defense, came out, and I learned a great deal about disease and about the immune system in that book, and it actually allowed me to occasionally sound like I knew what I was talking about during the whole COVID pandemic. But this latest book inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul is something that is right up my alley. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Matt Richtel, veteran New York Times reporter and a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And again, his latest book is inspired and it's also pretty inspiring. Matt, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Frank. Does veteran mean old? Uh, yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it okay, does. Okay, it does. I am an old. I, I finally graduated into that. I mean, you go from, you go from like, a, a, you know, like fledgling new New York Times reporter, and then the next <laughs> moment, you know, you're old. Uh, you know, it, it, well, uh, hey, we're happy to have you. You know, they say there's three stages of life. There's uh, there's who's Matt Richtel, then it's uh, get me Matt Richtel, then it's get me a young Matt Richtel, and then it's <laughs> then it's then it's who's Matt Richtel. So you're still at the at the phase in life where you're at get me Matt Richtel. That, uh, that that that's a perfect opening to tell you a, a funny story about. So I I was. Uh, when I started out writing this book about uh, create, there's so many funny stories that happen in the course of writing this book or interesting stories that creators told me or, but, but in the early in the book, I'm playing basketball out front of my house with my son who's, who was 11. He's now 13. And I said, I'm going to interview Bono uh, for, for this book about creativity. And he goes, Bono, is that a him or a her? <laughs> and, and, and I, it, 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 there's so much to talk about creativity, but one of the things to understand is exactly what you just said. Like, it's not the same as fame or fortune. Sometimes we confuse those things. Like, you must be creative. You made a lot of money doing something. Not true at all. In fact, we forget a lot of these people over time. Uh, th- this is true. You know, years ago in New York, the most famous DJ there was was named Martin Block. These days, uh, there's uh, it's tough finding someone to, kn- to that's heard of Martin Block. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the new book, but I've really been interested in the series of articles that you've been doing in The Times 
over pediatric mental health. And uh, this is something that we've been chronicling on the radio. And I got a lot of great feedback from callers and a lot of different ideas about why children and teens are experiencing such a problem, such a crisis, quite frankly, when it comes to mental health. Uh, Before we get into the causes and maybe even the possible solutions. Explain to folks how grave the situation is. What has the National Academy of Pediatrics said about how pervasive this problem is? And how do, how big of a problem is mental health among children and teens? Yeah, so just to just to back to you, the, the big picture that for, for listeners who are wondering, how do we just go from creativity to adolescent mental health? It just so happens that this is one of those rare moments for a a long-form journalist where I had a book come out and a series come out for the New York Times that I've spent 18 months doing. So if your head's spinning, my head's spinning. One is uh, really about hope and creativity. Mm. But the other thing, what is going on with this spike in adolescent mental health? And I will – let me me answer your question. Um, Since about 2007, suicide – among people 10 to 24 years old has gone up about 60%. And we've seen related rise over roughly the same period in people with self-harm around that age showing up in emergency departments. It gets a little tougher, Frank, to measure the rise in anxiety and depression for the simple reason that we weren't measuring those things as as easily before, and language has changed. So that what one might have called a bad mood uh, some time ago is now increasingly self-identified as anxiety and depression. Not that it's not real, but we've we've changed how we look at things. Well, Nonetheless, well, here's let, the upshot. Well, well let me ask it's you to pause. Crisis. Let me right. ask you to Sorry, pause there, actually, because that's something a lot of our listeners brought up the other day when we when we first started talking about it. They said, "Look, uh, things are no worse now among young people. It's just that we now have disorders and terminologies to refer to the turmoil that young people have always gone through. Is it actually worse now, or are we just finding new ways to identify problems that were?" already existing among young folks? The short answer is yes, both things are true, that we have unmasked some things that have been there before, but some of those things are intensifying. And the people who look at this very closely at the numbers will say uh, we are seeing the age come down where people are experiencing serious depression and anxiety, and there's no denying the suicide numbers. But I want to... could I, can I give a little more context please, please, for, this, please. for those yes, people asking please. that question? What really set me on this journey, understanding, Frank, what is going on with adolescent mental health, was not that mental health issues were on the rise. We knew that 18 months ago when I started to look into this. It was this more fundamental question. When I, you already mentioned that I'm veteran, old. When I was, when I was a, a teen in the late 80s in Colorado, what public health worried about were five things binge drinking, drunk driving injury and death, teen pregnancy, cigarettes, and illicit drugs. And to a one, Frank, they have fallen. At the very time, we've seen a rise of these internalized harms. So really what's at the heart of this is a question, why has the risk to adolescence shifted? That's really what we're exploring right now. It's not exclusively a mental health issue. It's a generational Mm. shift in risk. 
Uh, so let's talk about the the why, uh, the causes of the problem that young people are experiencing, even if it is, as you termed it, a generational shift in risk. This didn't just begin with the pandemic, did it? This was a problem nope. before the pandemic. Amen. Um, that is it, among the among the reasons I spent uh, was given so much time by the Times to explore this was that the science is very complicated. And mm. to put a fine point on it. The pandemic did not cause this full stop. These trends predate it. I'm going to get into, will you, will you permit a little neurobiology uh, happily, and, and, happily. Uh, to help explain what's going on here? Happily, yes. Okay, so since, first of all, let's talk about what adolescence is. You go back 150 years or whatever it is, adolescent looks like this. You hit puberty, Frank, not you specifically. <laughs> you people hit puberty. Uh, they and then and then their family said, "You got some options. You want to work in the farm or the factory, and who do you want to marry?" Here's two options. It was a short period with very little choice. Are you with me so far? I'm with you. Okay. Now, the economy has gotten very complicated. It's much different now, and puberty is become disentangled from adolescence in that puberty is hitting a lot earlier. I'm going to put puberty to the side for a second and just talk about adolescence. In a very complicated economy, instead of going from uh, you hit puberty, farmer factory, marry this person or this person, you go through a prolonged training period in order to participate in a complicated economy. And during that period, you're faced with a lot of options and choices and identity seeking. Adolescence arguably goes from 10 to 25 or something like that, longer than it's ever been. That's a period that's very complicated, much more so than it has been in the past. Now, I want to bring in puberty. I know I'm going on so long, so you've got to interrupt me at any time, mm-hmm. Frank. Mm-hmm. No, keep going. I'm not going to Okay, keep it. going. Look, puberty, let's take the year 1900 just to pick one out. For girls, puberty was about 14. Now it's about 12. It's been falling consistently. We don't exactly know why, but very likely it has something to do, at least in part, with nutrition. More nutrition signals to the bodies of boys and girls that they are ready to reproduce. Here's what happens during puberty. You think of it as having to do with, you know, the, the loins, the nether regions, a lot of the actions in the brain. And when you hit puberty, it stimulates you to be hyper aware of social and hierarchical information. So now you hit puberty a little bit earlier, and all of a sudden, in this era in particular, in this era, Frank, there is so much social and hierarchical information. It's not just social media. It's competitive information about schools. It's all the news, good and bad, that you hear. It's your parents worried about a world that actually may not be as problematic as many make it out to be. And you're suddenly attuned to it. But guess what? Puberty hit earlier. The rest of your brain didn't develop any faster. Mm. So now you're having a heck of a time making sense of it in a very complicated world. It's so interesting because I posed the same question to our listeners, even touching upon some of the things that you had written in your articles. And there were all sorts of different theories as to what the cause of this were. Um, the, the, the most pervasive was a sense of social isolation, that uh, children and teens yes. were moving towards their screens rather than interacting with other people in real life. Other people brought up things like uh, the decline in religion. Other people brought things like uh, stop uh, blaming eight-year-olds for slavery. 
You name a cause, uh, and people brought it up. But one of the things that I didn't hear was the physical dimension that you're mentioning. You, you actually say, and I guess this is backed up by uh, some other scientists, that the physical changes in children and teens, their their mental changes are not keeping up with that at a rate that historically their peers have kept up with. Yes, and the world wasn't as complicated. And to those, everybody's, all those theories, except for the the slavery one doesn't really <laughs> resonate with anything I've heard. But the but I want to speak to the the other ones that your callers brought up. There's a lot of good intuition on this, and I just want to explain the science around it. Say, for instance, those who said you know they're not going to church or they're not. Um, I can't remember what the uh, they're. Well, it was the basically that, that was the most popular. That was the most popular answer: is too much screen time, not enough okay. time so interacting me, with humans. Let me hit on that science very quickly. The, the screen time science is very conflicted if you ask the question, does social media per se cause, this, cause these problems? The, the science is not at all clear that, say, Facebook or Instagram or one of these sites causes that. But what the science also seems to suggest is that rather than this being about the phone or a social media site, some very crucial parts of lifestyle have been displaced by screen time. Sleep is down. Exercise is down. In-person time is down. Church, and I don't mean church as a religious function, right, but as a but social as a function one. of hanging out with other people, mm-hmm. is down. These are pastoral experiences relative to sitting in front of the screen that actually allowed the brain to process information more slowly. There was less coming at you and more time spent processing. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in that respect, many of your callers make some really, really good points. When we talk about the causes, uh, that's one thing, and I guess there are varying varying theories and uh, backed up by all sorts of different evidence. But what's the solution? What do the experts say is the best way for families, for teachers, for uh, relatives, for whomever, the media, coaches, to help young people get out of a crisis mentality? Well, that's a great question, and I'm going to write about this soon, Frank, and I'm not going to give it all away here, partly because I haven't finished my reporting. But but I do want to say that there are some methodologies that are gaining steam that essentially, and I I love how you pose the question, Frank, is that there are methodologies gaining steam that essentially help young people reframe how catastrophic they're seeing the world. And essentially what's happening in a lot of these situations is young people are seeing something bad and taking it to the nth degree because their brains aren't developed enough and haven't had enough processing to make sense of these very um, – these questions that stimulate a pubescent mind. Am I making sense there? Yes, absolutely. And what you'll hear about – I encourage re- readers if they don't know about things like CBT – Cognitive behavioral therapy, it sounds fancy. It's really not. It's a reframing of how people see potentially catastrophic situations. DBT, uh, uh, um, dialective behavioral therapy. Here's the thing. Remember I mentioned that risk has changed? Right. Earlier on? Mm -hmm. Our medical systems have effectively not kept up because this really snuck up on us. And we weren't prepared to rethink the kind of risk young people are facing. There's a way in which I can spin this as good news. And the good news is 
let's just say some of this we've unmasked that was already there, and some of this is intensified. If we begin to understand the problem and give young people coping skills, which we are capable of doing, we might actually have a happier country, a more civil con- civil country, and more well-adjusted adults. But we got to put the systems in place to do it. I love it. Uh, that that is talk about finding a silver lining in a in a tough subject. Uh, that is a great way to look at it. We're talking with Matt Rickdahl. He's a New York Times reporter. Uh, his latest book is Inspired: Understanding Creativity: A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Last book. Uh, last question about this, and I want to focus on the book. How prevalent? Um, how prevalent is the? is the notion of the suicidal teenager. You've written about how a lot of these folks have ended up in emergency rooms due to suicidal uh, suicide attempts, essentially. How common is that right now? Well, I, t- I gave you the number um, uh, of the 60% increase, um, and I don't. I, I, I actually can't remember, Frank, off the top of my head, the, um, the raw prevalence numbers of suicidality. Um, I will say this. Our reporting has shown that on any given night, between several hundred and up to 5,000 young people are staying in emergency rooms because they are unsafe to go home. Mm. So those are big, big numbers. And emergency rooms are distraught because they're not really equipped to treat young people with that. Those are big numbers. I'm not talking about you know, every kid around the corner from you by any stretch. What I am saying is there is distress being experienced in no small amount by this generation, and we just have to grapple with what to do about it because we can do something about it. Uh, really interesting. All right, so let's talk about the book Inspired. What inspired you to write it? Uh, you've been writing about health care and related issues for, for years. Why focus on the idea of creativity? What was your, your inspiration on writing this? Okay, are you, are you guys ready for some hopeful good news? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I can jerk, jerk the reader, <laughs> listeners' heads around like this so fast. All right, well, I'll, I'll make this break by telling you a story about Charles Schultz that um, kind of gets into why I wanted to understand the science of creativity. It's an experience that I suspect you've had, Frank. Lots of creative people have had. Lots of people would like to have. So um, early on in my own creative journey, after I had a bit of a collapse and and discovered my voice, I got privileged enough to, to write a syndicated comic strip. And my editor was the editor of Peanuts. Her name was Amy. I said, Amy, you got to tell me a Charles Schultz story. This is the story she told me. She said... She said, I guess Sparky was what his intimates called him. She called him Sparky. She said, Sparky would wake up in the morning and say, oh, my God, I have got the idea for the perfect comic strip. This is it. This is the one. And he would set about writing in a kind of state of thrall. And the next morning he'd wake up and look at his comic strip and he'd go, eh, I don't know. It was close, but not quite there. Wait a second. I've got it. I've got an idea for a new comic strip. This is the one. And I have experienced that in a number of ways in my own life, through books, through the series I get inspired to do for the Times, through some really bad music that uh, I'm happy to force on you guys, but I won't. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to understand what is inspiration, where does it come from, what is creativity that follows from it, and man, did I learn a lot of stuff, Frank, because when I really go down a rabbit hole, I go all oh, yeah. the way down. And soup to nuts, I learned what 
activity was. Well, and you interviewed uh, some of the greatest creators across so many different disciplines, and uh, the interviews are, are just terrific. Before we get into the specifics of who said what, let's talk about general trends when it comes to creativity. What do Yo-Yo Ma, for instance, the musician, the famous cellist, and the creator of the TV show Deadwood have in common? Yeah, what they have in common is something extremely specific, and it's a little bit of what um, uh, what Einstein called intelligence having fun. What they have in common is the ability to allow themselves to um, produce, sorry, to recognize ideas in an unfiltered way and express them without knowing whether they're going to succeed. They, are, they have a certain faith that that feeling of excitement that pours out of them has a reason to exist and they do not need to censor themselves. So if, I, if I'm uh, in the process of being creative, does that mean, based on the, the trends that you identified and these folks across all these different disciplines, that I'm not afraid to tell people about some wacky idea I have, even if th- that risks ridicule, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it, I'll, I'll even go further than that, Frank. When you really um, start to feel it, far from being afraid to tell people, you are thrilled to tell them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I suspect there are people who at certain times of the day that will not take my calls because they know <laughs> there's Matt with an idea. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about um, people who, who really tap into their creativity, I'll illustrate with a story of Einstein that I was told by a scholar who studies uh, the great creators. He, uh, he, <laughs> he goes to a friend. He says, I've got it. I figured out the unified field theory. And his colleague or friend, whatever it was, says, well, Albert, that's great. But under that theory, the universe can't exist. And the thing that happens with people who tap into this feeling of inspiration is it's more about quantity than quality. Many of the great uh, people – and I don't – by the way, I should be really clear. When I say creators – Again, it's not fame or fortune. It's people who give themselves permission. Surely you know, Frank, and I'm sure there's a lot of listeners on this show who are those wonderful entrepreneurial types who keep coming up with ideas, you know, and they tell their husband or wife, oh, this we got to do. We need a magnet that's scratch and sniff. We got to do it. The world needs that. They're not afraid to tell somebody. Maybe they should be. (laughs) Uh, Talking with Matt Richtel. His newest book is uh, Inspiration. Now, um, I I hate to make this, you know, about me or or selfishly directed, but what advice do you have for me and by extension everybody that's listening when I'm doing this show or when anybody is doing whatever they're doing when it comes to art, when it comes to the workplace, when it comes to seeking to be in a creative mode – what can I do, say, think, or act like in order to um, have the creative spigots flowing in my own brain when I prepare this show, for instance? Well, you, you set off an alarm bell for me earlier, Frank, when you said you stay up at night thinking about it. I'm, I'm going to give you some science. Uh, I'm gonna, can I throw down some more science? Please, come on. Lay it on me. Down? Lay it on me, Matt. So – Uh, I think this was done at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and they ask a bunch of really creative physicists and writers and artists to write down what they're doing when they come up with their big idea over a period of time. I don't know, weeks, months, whatever. 20% of the time, 
when they come up with an idea that's really powerful for them, they are doing something else mundane altogether. They are not thinking about solving the problem that they either wanted to solve or maybe didn't realize that they wanted to solve. And the, 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 the scholar behind that um, says to me, how many things can you name where 20% of the time you're the very best at it when you're not trying? Mm. What, what, I, I'm, it, it's not alone enough to allow yourself to have your mind wander or to have faith that those processes will take place. But one of the things that may not work is focusing entirely on solution, solution, mm. idea, 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 idea. You know, Gary Trudeau, uh, the, the creator of Doonesbury, he says, for me, uh, it's always in the shower. His wife, Jane Pauley, keeps a piece of paper same. by her bed. Same. What's that? No, say I had to install a pad in the shower because that's where I found all my uh, ideas going down the drain. Right. So, okay, great. So you start to have these ideas. But I want to hit on something else because that sounds, I don't know, it sounds a little trite for me to say don't try. There's more to it than that. And the more to it than that is to actually recognize what mind-wandering or what it feels like when the ideas start to percolate and you don't shut them down. So I want to give you a little bit of an exercise, and I'll do it from personal experience, but then I'll ask you yours, okay? So before, when I was a kid, before I went to bed at night, I used to have these funky fantasies. Not, we're not getting into the filthy fantasies. Just, these are just like things I would think about that would put me to sleep. One of them was I dreamed of – not dreamed. I would think about going down an aisle – of a sporting goods store and putting all the, the sports equipment that I couldn't re- my family couldn't really afford and piling up my cart. And I would think about that and just tell myself that story. I have others that I used to go back to. Do, are there any that you ever use like that? Um, well, uh, I, I'm trying to think. Uh, there, there are, yeah. I mean, when I, um, you know, when I uh, buy a lottery ticket, for instance, I have to yes. plan out how I'm going to spend all of the money bef- when, when I buy the lottery ticket. I have to go in some detail about what I'm giving to charity, what investments I'm going to make, what Fantastic. family members I'm going to give the money to. Sure. Very involved, very in-depth. Okay. So really, really a vital thing for people to recognize. You may not know it, Frank, but you are a writer writing a book in that moment. And I think I find a lot of people don't really understand when I say let your mind wander in an unfiltered way. They don't really understand what I mean. The reason I mention the going to bed example is because it's a time we don't really censor ourselves. We don't feel like we owe that time to anybody. Mm. We don't feel like we have to worry. We don't feel like we're judging those thoughts. When I talk about drawing on your subconscious, which I haven't talked about at all, so fair enough, you can point that out. But I'm alluding to the idea of drawing ideas from your subconscious. You have to be willing to look at those in an unfiltered way and, a, and an unjudgmental way. And that takes both some practice um, and some permission. And the permission is, hey, I'm not exactly wasting time, but I'm not exactly being productive here either. So um, does that mean I should try to go to sleep earlier? So, so, so well, it that means – that when you're when remember you said now I could, I may have misheard right. you because clearly I'm not a very good listener I'm doing a lot of yakking <laughs> but when you were when you lay, didn't you say you lay in bed thinking about absolutely ways to make the show yes more creative? absolutely every day I would argue that some of that's probably productive and some of it is a pretty good way to like think and be rigid mm. instead of feeling 
Understood. Understood. Uh, yeah. No. Um, uh, well, I think that's uh, so th- I guess, the you know, it's sort of like when you're trying to meet somebody to be in a relationship with. They say it's always a lot easier to do that once you stop trying to meet somebody and then you end up meeting folks. I guess that's the, it's the same way. You can't try flip a switch in your brain and say, I'm going to be creative now. And And more than that is that when you are willing something, it's often taking the really analytical parts of your brain, and those are a different part of the brain than the parts in the subconscious that sort of spit out ideas that get connected to each other and uh, and magnetize and you know maybe you're sitting there I mean it sounds magical right you're sitting there thinking about uh, your lottery ticket thing and all of a sudden there's an idea for a show and you have mm. no idea where it came from mm. but the place it came from wasn't the analytical part of your brain focusing on the question, it was the flow part of your brain letting a bunch of ideas percolate that you weren't trying to control. It makes a lot of sense to me. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Matt Richtel. Um, we're not even scratching the surface of his new book, Inspired. It's all about understanding creativity, a journey through art, science, and the soul. There's musicians interviewed for it, scientists, writers, uh, just about any type of creative field that you can imagine. Um, Matt does a great job in terms of delving into the creative process itself. What was interesting to me was the role that the COVID pandemic and the shutdown played in the collective creativity of the American or even worldwide consciousness. A lot of folks would would figure, all right, we're stuck home all day. We're watching 18 hours of Netflix every day. We're not necessarily being inspired by conversations at the water cooler at the office. A lot of folks would think that that would retard uh, the creative uh, juices in our brain. That wasn't necessarily the case, was it? No, I, I'm gonna. I want to say that I think this is, uh, and I make the case in the book that um, both before COVID, but in, especially intensified by it, we are in um, among the most creative periods in human history. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I'll go further. This is the most creative period in human history. And just to support, I, I have data in the book to support that through patents and patents across borders. But just to give you a sense of why I think that, and then hit on COVID specifically. The research shows that we have always had these enclaves of creativity, Jerusalem, Florence, Harlem, uh, Hollywood. You know, you can go down the list and find these spots. You know what was going on in those places was partly it was a whole bunch of people, a relatively big population, thinking about similar issues. Mm. So you saw cooperation, collaboration. You saw competition and really interesting ideas bubbled up out of the surface. Well, you know, right now, thanks to technology – it is the new Jerusalem every place. You want to talk to somebody about some idea. You want to connect to uh, 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 a piece of information. You want to have a collaborator who lives in, you know, X, Y, or Z. You got it. So this is a really creative period. But in COVID in particular, I think two things happened that, that illustrate different ways creativity emerges. One was the sheer terror of COVID that led to a lot of innovation on the front of, of vaccines and so on and so forth. But the other way is that our lives got a little quieter, Frank. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people and a lot of people I've talked to started to ask, how do I want to spend my time? I've got a little bit of silence here. I'm walking. I'm hanging out with my family. I'm thinking. I'm percolating. I'm mind-wandering. And you start to see resignations, the great resignation, and I don't know how many of those people are out 
about doing something creative or something different or something entrepreneurial, but I think it's born in part out of that period of reflection and quietness and lack of distraction of the pace of the world that dictated us before. Wow. Uh, no, that's uh, uh, very, very interesting. And uh, I know you've already been very generous with uh, with your time. But one thing that I have to get you to clear up uh, is the difference or the similarity between creativity and intelligence. Is that yes. the same thing? Is creativity no. the same as intelligence? Straighten us out. No, no. Big no, giant no. Um, great fallacy that there are creative geniuses, that there's these isolated creative geniuses. Um, I blame Hollywood, and I specifically blame Hollywood writers who secretly want to be these people. That's my theory about how that mythology got created. But the, re- the research will show that, um, that if you have average intelligence, it is more than sufficient to be wildly creative. And in fact, if you get, not that IQ is the measure of intelligence, but if you get into high IQ areas like above 147 or something, it can actually inhibit creativity. Mm. Here's the thing. Having enough intelligence to understand how systems work such that you can participate in them, but enough openness to look for other and new ways to, it, to, uh, to allow yourself to be receptive to new ways of doing things is all you need. Uh, it's all there in the, in the book, as they say. And is creativity something that can be, if not learned, trained? Can we train our brains to act in a yes. more creative uh, fashion yes. other than just lowering our inhibitions about um, being enthusiastic about sharing what might be unorthodox ideas? Yes, I think you can, but I, I do think it takes some real recognition of a few things. One, what gets in the way of our creativity, and that is a, a bunch of fear, and you can see the research about that. But I do think you have to actually um, train yourself to, uh, uh, to allow ideas to percolate, and that's not by saying it. You really have to will yourself to have the permission to, to let ideas in that might seem noxious to you, uh, to feel the humility of, of, of the potential that your ideas may be silly. And, and then you've got to, 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 to write down and try to seize those ideas. That, that's a function that trained. But the truth is that a lot of the way we're trained as children beats that out of us. And it beats us out mm. of it for, for in, on, on its face for a good reason. But I don't want to go on too long, so I'm not sure whether I should do this or not. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, you've got me hooked, so I have to, have to ask you to finish. Yeah, tell me. Okay, so look, I, I raised two kids. You, you know, everybody who's ever been a parent or a kid knows these phrases. Don't run in the street. Mm-hmm. Don't pick your nose and eat it. Uh, don't stay on your side of the, the back seat. Don't eat that off the floor. We give our kids lots and lots and lots of rules for good reason to keep them alive. And there's a, there's a study done in the late 50s and the early 60s that identified the fourth grade slump. And the fourth grade slump was the fact that sometime around fourth grade, young people get less creative. They stop generating as many ideas. It's around that time subsequent research has shown, coupled with the research of the time, that young people really start to think about saying no first. They ask, what is the rule not what is the other idea? What is my imagination, Shay? Mm. And that, that can be reinforced by testing and other things. It's hard to retrain your brain, Frank, to not say first, what's the reason I shouldn't try something new? 
because there's a lot of training in us about why we should. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody colors out the lines and goes off the rails, that you can have both. In fact, the best creations are a little bit new and a lot of what's old. So it doesn't mean rejecting all the old rules. It means understanding that you've been programmed to some extent that way, and you have the freedom to add something new to it and still not be a bad person. Uh, on that note, we have to uh, end it there. Matt Richtel, I always, um, and I'm not just saying this because it goes with the, uh, the premise of your book, I really always feel so energized and inspired whenever we speak. And, um, you know, I, I really am glad you're in, on the printed page instead of on the radio because you're the last person I'd ever want to be competing with. You have such a great way of uh, telling stories with words and with sounds, and uh, your enthusiasm is always infectious. Matt Richtel, thanks so much. Good luck with Frank, the book. I hope we can talk pleasure, again. really. I'll see you in three years when we do another one. <laughs> Hopefully I we promise can... I won't compete. I'm not interested. <laughs> Hopefully we can do it uh, more quickly than that. Matt Richtel, the book is inspired. Check it out. I think you're going to like it a great deal. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.